to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear dance writer Cheryl Osula interviewing former principal dancer and current ballet master Katita Waldo. This interview took place on March 19th, 2017, before a triple bill performance of Yuri Posakov's Fusion, Arthur Pita's Salome, and Liam Scarlett's Fearful Symmetries. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today at the War Memorial Opera House for this performance of San Francisco Ballet's Program 5, Contemporary Voices. I'm Cheryl Osula, a writer for San Francisco Ballet, and as many of you know, my guest today is Katita Waldo. She's only been around for 29 years. That's how old I am, 29. Uh, formerly a principal dancer and now a ballet master. And today is Sunday, March 19th, 2017, which just so happens to be the 145th anniversary of the birth of ballet impresario Serge Diaghilev. So, how many of you saw Program 4? Lots of you, that's great. So you saw George Balanchine's Prodigal Son, and that was premiered at Diaghilev's company, Ballet Russe, in 1929 in Paris. So happy birthday, Serge. So um, my guest, Katita Waldo, uh, joined the Corps de Ballet at San Francisco Ballet in 1988, and that was the start of a 22-year performing career. Um, she, and 16 of those years were as a principal dancer. And while she was doing that, she started to segue into her new role as ballet master. She uh, set Yuri Posakov's ballet, Magritte Mania, on the Bolshoi Ballet in 2004. And in 2007, she assisted Christopher Wielden on a world premiere, also at the Bolshoi Ballet, called Elsinore. And actually, they made a documentary about that, which was shown on BBC. So I'm going to try to find that. Um, in addition to all of those things, Katita uh, teaches for the company and has taught at the school and across the United States and internationally. You can also find her in a coffee table book. Um, she and former principal dancers Tina LeBlanc and Kristen Long were featured in a book uh, called Balancing Acts about ballerinas who have babies while they're still performing. So you can check that out. It's, uh, I think, the author's Lucy Gray. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, Katita, this, so far this season, you've been uh, a ballet master for uh, William Forsythe's Pop Hearts and Yerji Bubenicek's um, Fragile Vessels, George Balanchine's Stravinsky Violin Concerto, and of course, Arthur Peter Salome. And that's, I guess, what we'll have to talk about today. Actually, for Salome, <laughs> I wasn't ballet master. I was just in it, so that was... Oh, I thought, yeah. you, I thought you were hanging out at the table there during rehearsals. No? Okay. No. All right. Um, well, thank you for that correction. So we will, we will talk only about it from the perspective of a performer instead of a ballet master. Um, so I think that most of the people in the audience will agree with me once they've seen it that you get to wear an absolutely killer dress. Yes. Um, but you're also kind of a 
killer person because you choose the man for your daughter and things do not go well for him. So, you know, this is, I, I have to say, you know, this ballet has a lot of suspension kind of creepiness to it. What does it take to get into the mindset to do a role like this? You don't dance, but you really rule the stage in quite a few moments. Um. It's a, it was a real challenge in that, um, as you mentioned, there's not a lot of movement. I don't do a lot. I walk, I smoke, I drink. But um, to be able to, to hold the stage when you, when you don't have a lot to do is, is, um, is a trick. And I can't speak to whether I did it well or not. I know Anita Pachotti, who also shares the role with me, who you will see today, is astonishing and incredible she can just stand there and you just you, you watch her so that was mostly the idea uh, Arthur described this character as um, kind of being inspired by um, the wife in House of Cards the American version of House of Cards so she's kind of a Lady Macbeth type person behind the scenes and he kind of said that that um, she was the one that really ran the roost even though Herod King Herod is the the boss in theory um, it's very it's a very unusual uh, piece it's set in the 50s I think 50s 60s so he's moved it up a little bit it's not um, it's not the biblical story shall we say and I'm not going to say too much because you should for those of you who haven't seen it it's definitely an experience and I don't want to uh, spoilers no spoilers but my dress is amazing so yeah it is I think you should hold out for making them give it to you um, yeah, I, I, again, not to, not to reveal too much, although you may have heard some things, it is a very uh, different take on the Salome story um, and quite, quite imaginative. Um, can, you, can you just talk a little bit, just you were there from the beginning in rehearsals every day, um, just about the process of this, kind of how the concept you know, became real and what it took to develop your character. And I'm also curious, sorry, I'm jumping ahead here, but is it harder to stand around on stage than to actually dance? Um, good questions, both of them. Um, well, one wasn't a question, but it was, the process was very interesting. Arthur, it, well, first of all, he's a wonderful, charming, delightful man, as was the entire team. And all of them were absolutely enthusiastic and giving and um, excited to work with the company, uh, committed to their vision and in sharing it and, with us and to make to bring that vision to light. Um, very collaborative, so they were very open to, uh, to interpretation of certain moments. It's, it's a theater piece. It's definitely a theater piece that has dance in it. Um, so if you're expecting to see tons and tons and tons of dancing, this is a theater piece that has a lot of, it has movement in it and dancing in it. But it's mostly he was interested in the character, uh, characters driving it and in the emotions and in the, 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 the acting, but um, little moments like there, we spent a lot of time on a certain fight scene, which I'm not going to get into in a, 
things like that. I'm just trying to make it as real as possible and as, as visceral as possible. So that was, uh, that was really interesting. Um, so with a lot of uh, rehearsals and a lot of our process, you come in and you, you, you do the steps. But with Arthur's ballet, there was a lot of of talking about how to approach a particular moment, not a, not a step, but a moment. It was more about what was happening with the people rather than what was happening with the steps. So at least for, for my, my character um, and how we all worked and, and what we did together. So that was very interesting. And yes, it is very hard to do nothing on the stage. It's very hard. Yeah, so uh, when you have something to do, you have something to focus on, and, and, and it's, um, I mean, I had something to do. I had to sit and watch, uh, you know, a lot of the time and, and stay in character. So, but it is, it is a challenge because you don't want to go away. You have, to, you have to still be present the entire time, even though you're not really, you haven't been given a step to take your, your mind off of, everything or or to to channel what you're doing through a movement um you have to to let the emotion and the and the presence speak for itself when you're still so it's um that was a challenge and walking in heels that was (laughs) don't trip don't trip don't trip and bending over in that dress which is a great dress but it's really tight (laughs) For those of you just coming in, I'm, I'm chatting with uh, ballet master Katita Waldo. Um, you know, you keep saying you don't have anything to do, but actually you do. You are just, you are so in charge on that stage. And, um, you know, it, there's, there's an ominousness to this. So, so, so how do you, who I know from personal experience... You are not in the least bit not ominous. <laughs> how do you how do you get into the mindset of that kind of character? Well, I've I've always loved acting. It's one of my favorite things that I got to do when I danced. And um, being the bad guy is always the best. Always the best. So I mean, I don't know why, but it's it's really fun to explore that part of yourself. Um, I will also say, uh, even though I said that there's nothing to do, um, there's a lot to react to. And um, in my particular character, uh, I am supposed to be somewhat um, ominous and a little twisted. And, you know, so when I was sitting there or walking around, I, I am reacting to the people that are on the stage with me. And uh, one of the things, actually, that I enjoyed very much, I had the pleasure of dancing... Or, performing this with both casts of Salome's and um, each one even though maybe the audience won't see the moments when we have a connection but I saw them and I felt them and it helped me so much there are little moments where you know Salome would look at me and I'd have a reaction to her and it and those were not choreographed there was I was given a character and then I interpreted whatever was happening as the character I was given to play. So it was really fun. It was, it was great. For those of you just coming in, I'm talking with ballet master Katita Waldo. Um, so I wanted to go back to that idea of dance theater. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's 
dance theater is kind of a specific thing, and I don't know that this fully falls into that category, but, but it's not just that there's less dancing that makes it seem like dance theater. Can you talk a little bit about what you, how you perceive it, what, what makes you think of it that way? I think, I mean, my, my entire career was pretty much uh, ballet-driven, and I love theater, but I, my, I haven't had as much experience in it as I have with dance. And I think, I think that with a ballet, traditional ballet, the movement drives everything. And with theater, a dance theater, it's more of a, of a complete picture between where dancing is part of the entire thing, but it isn't what drives the performance or what drives the the piece. So it's um, it's a little more um, you know. Sometimes with ballet, you have the set, and it's very pretty. But what you're looking at is the dancers, and the set is more like a frame for like a painting, and you have the frame, and then you have what you're looking at. And I think with, uh, with dance theater, it's more of an in a complete um, experience where the set and the lights and the are, are as important as everything else. And um, depending on the piece, I think it does have to do, uh, well, with Salome, obviously it's narrative-driven, so it's, it's, a, it's a snippet of, of a, it's a story that's um, painted with the entire everything, the costumes, the lights, the things I won't tell you about that you have to see for yourself, as well as the dancers and, and the movement. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a large part of it is this sort of heightened sense of theatricality that's going on and, and, and the fact that, that so much of, of the, like you say, the drive of this is, is coming from things besides just specific dance steps. But I, I did want to ask you, and I know that you're, you know, um, you don't do them, but, you know, you are a ballet master. You observe all the time. I know that you can't look at anything without kind of breaking it down. So, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about, about the movement in Salome? Um, I remember talking to Arthur um, about sort of like the animal motifs that he used and that sort of thing. But I'd be really interested to hear your take on it. Um, well, it's very organic movement. Um, it's less, it's more about movement than steps. So even though there are a lot of times when the dancers have to be in unison, it's more about moving and responding to the music and the environment that you're in. Um, so it's it's... Mostly that it's it's not um, it's more movement and less steps I would say. And in terms of just the the movement quality, you know, I think of it as 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 pretty grounded um, and very very visceral, very yes. um, full bodied. Yes. Um, yeah. What, why why is that? You know, do you think that's particular for this ballet? I don't. I haven't seen a lot of Arthur Peter's work. Yeah, I I haven't. I've seen pictures, actually, images of some of his other work, and he's very um, avant-garde, I have to say, and his his visuals are incredible. But he does visceral is a perfect word to use um, in this particular story. It's kind of a coming of age of Salome. I'm not going to give anything away by by doing that. So it has to do with her doing what it takes to become a, 
to enter womanhood and um, and grow up in a way. Um, and so it, it's very um, savage and um, sensual and and. Um, so all the, the the movement is reflected in that, but again, also because there were, there there are like I said, there are steps, but it is more movement. So the dancer herself or himself, in the case of John the Baptist, has to uh, tailor the movement to themselves. So each dancer will approach this in a different way and bring something different, even if they're doing the same thing. So. Yeah, you used the word savage, and I I was actually thinking the word primitive at the same time. Uh, um, But there's also, you know, there's that quality, and there's also uh, kind of the opposite. There's this unusual juxtaposition, I think, of of that savagery and sophistication. Yes. Um, It really... There's that dress again. Yeah. And Salome's dress, too, is also very beautiful. So, yeah, it's this uh, this veneer of, of... elegance and then the primitive alongside it and the the elegant uh domineering the primitive i think yeah i don't think it's giving anything away to say that there is ritual involved in this ballet and so i think that is part of the the primitive aspect of it uh one one thing that's interesting um after the after the premiere, I overheard someone in the audience say, "Oh, gee, I wonder why Salome was on point. She didn't really need to be," and and I remembered uh, Arthur talking about wanting her to kind of be elevated above all of this. Um, but you know, do you have any thoughts on that? What do you? How do you think that contrast between Salome and the and the hostages? Um, how do you think that works dynamically? I think that that's that's very true. Uh, the idea with point shoes uh, originally, and you correct me if I'm wrong because I think you'd know, is to give an ethereal quality to the dancer so that they would look otherworldly. And um, I think this is one of those things where it, it, the, the point shoe, as you said, elevates her and puts her above above the, the primitiveness around her. So I think that that's... A, a good point. The juxtaposition there is 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 enhanced by the point shoes. So you know, I, I I do want to let you know that we're going to have time for some questions from you, so you can start thinking about those. Um, but I wanted to 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 go back to your role as ballet master. Um, you know, you've been doing it for seven years now. What what's what's the what do you like best about it, and and what's the big challenge? Do you think? Um, I what I like best about it is working with the dancers. Um, there, it's a great group of people in this company, and it's a privilege. And I feel always that it's a collaboration. Um, I don't feel like I'm in the room just telling them what to do. I feel that we're in there working together. Um, the as far as challenges are concerned, uh, when I was a dancer, I had to learn my part, and I learned my part, made sure I knew my part, did my part as ballet master. Ideally, I should know every single part, and that is a very big challenge, um, particularly because our company is committed to bringing you the greatest variety of dance that we possibly can and as many ballets as possible, but that is very challenging because we have very little time often to put ballets together. So the learning curve is to learn a ballet, to get it, to be ready to go into a room and either teach it to new people or review it 
um, is it, that's really tight and it, it can be very very hard on the ballet masters because there is so little time and on the dancers as well but they always do it it's it's amazing it's really amazing so part of the of the rehearsal process um, you know includes a, videoing things for sometimes just to refer to in other rehearsals and sometimes to actually document things for for future use, um, but you can't rely on video. Video captures mistakes, um, and and it is a limited medium. So, h how else uh, do you notate what you need to know about a ballet? Um, well, all of the ballet masters, we have our own systems, and um, often, if like I, I, we work in collaboration sometimes, especially with b the bigger ballets, we'll be assigned more than one ballet master to a particular section. And if you look at, uh, like if I'm working on Cinderella with somebody and I look at their notebook, I have no idea what, what, what is that, I don't know. And they feel the same about me because um, we have our own way of, of figuring these things out. Um, I find that, uh, the best thing for me is just to learn the darn material. So when a, when a person comes to set a ballet or choreograph a ballet, um, I do my best to learn as the dancers do at the same time. It does help to write things down because it can jog the memory, but I can't tell you how many times I've written every, you know, every step down in panche with a left leg with a little arrow. And, and then I go back and look at it, and I'm like, what? What does that mean? I have no clue what that is. And it isn't until I look at the video that what I wrote makes sense. So, um, you know, some, some people uh, do really, really well writing every step down, and it, that's how it works for them. For me, I'm a visual person. I'm a physical person. I need to, I need to learn the steps myself. But when you have 6 million thousand steps, it's a little difficult. So I do the best I can. Well, and it's it's not just steps; it's spacing, it's yes. timing, oh, it's yeah. quality of movement, not just the step itself. So, yeah. I mean, do you just yeah spacing? Actually, that that's because uh, I'm so used to learning the choreography. Uh, I often am neglectful about the spacing, and I'll come into a rehearsal, and somebody says, "Well, where do I stand?" I'm like, uh, "Over there." Uh, no, and then, but I'm, you know, it's still, it's still a learning process. I mean, it isn't something that you go into and just learn like that. So even after seven years, I still feel like I'm learning a ton, and I hopefully I'm getting better and better at the job as I go along. There's nothing that feels more rewarding than to go into the room with the dancers and know what you're doing. That's really good. So when they ask a question, you can actually say, yes, you go over to eighth mark, and you go like this. And so that's, that's, um, that's my aim, is to have the those moments every single time rather than say let me check and have to go back to my book or to to double check something on the video so it's a process what about just in terms of a particular ballet's movement it seems to me has as not a ballet master that that jotting down what's happening in Balanchine's Stravinsky Violin Concerto might be a little easier than writing splat, but put the left leg back over your head. You know, yeah. when there's no particular vocabulary to go with it? Yes, very much so. Um, I think one of the things that has been the most delightful and wonderful experiences for me as a ballet master. When I danced, I got to do a lot of Balanchine. It was a major part of my repertoire, and I loved it. But it wasn't until I, and, and I mean, I had a clue, but when I became ballet master, I got to work on a number of Balanchine pieces, and the, the simplicity 
not just of the of the the movement well the movement I remember doing four temperaments and it ended up for various reasons that I had to set it because the person who had set it originally couldn't come back so when we brought it back after the summer and we were getting ready for performance I was told well you have to set it and I thought oh god well I'll get my notebook it was my first year as ballet master that I'd done it the first time and I went to get my book notebook and I didn't have one I didn't have a single thing I, I thought oh my god what am I oh my god this is going to be horrible it's so complicated and then I started looking at it and it looks really complicated but it was so beautifully simple and the musicality Stravinsky Valen Concerto same thing I watching it I danced it I danced the second aria I I worked on the core last time we did it but not the principles and I thought oh my god this the first aria I'm not going to be able to understand it it's too complicated so simple, so sensible, so organic. It was a pleasure. And other ballets are more difficult, and they're more, uh, like you said, and you end up writing things like butterfly step with a two-hand cow because you're just trying to say, what, what's going to describe this movement because it isn't port bras or arabesque. It's a thing. So you come up with all sorts of funny words to describe movements that will hopefully jog your memory when you're trying to put it back together. It, it's it's an amazing job. I'm always in awe of them when I see them in there and, and, and see them just pull out all this knowledge. So if you have a question, uh, raise your hand. I would like to ask that each person uh, ask only one question, and please keep it brief. Will you be ballet master for any of the works in the next upcoming programs? Yes, I am. Uh, I work on Within the Golden Hour with Anita Pachotti, and I am also uh, Cinderella. I'm working on Cinderella. Anyone? She's, she's asking whether our ballet masters use any of the formal notation systems that exist for ballet, uh, Laba notation and Benesh notation. Um, those are still in use, but uh, it takes time to learn them. And, I mean, it takes, like, it takes years, a couple years to study it, and I just don't have the time. So I've made my own way of, of doing it that works. But I've been fascinated by it. I remember when we did Onegin, the woman who came to set it, I think she was using lab notation. And I looked at her book, and it was like Chinese. It was uh, completely foreign, and I couldn't make head or tails of it. So it definitely takes a long time. I'm very interested in it, because if it makes things simpler for me, that would be great. Right. There's also there there is a computerized notation systems, but yeah, they they. Oh, I should every, look into that. Yeah, I should look into that for sure. They have they have their advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. I would say. Who else has a question? I thought I saw a hand over there. No. Right. 
the, the question is, is, is how a dancer handles, you know, working hard all day in rehearsals and then having to actually be, you know, sharp and on top of everything at night in a performance? Um, well, during our rehearsal period, we usually work a max of six hours a day. And there we definitely have rules about you can't work, uh, you have to have five-hour, uh, five-hour, five-minute breaks. You can't work more than three hours in a row before having an hour break. That's during rehearsal period. Um, but during performance period, we're technically not supposed to rehearse more than two hours a day on a performance day. So uh, they give us a break uh, you know, usually around 4.30 is the earliest or the late, maybe 5 o'clock is the latest that we would get out of a rehearsal. But our schedule coordinator, Alan Villarreal, who is a magician with time and, and, and the scheduling, is very mindful of making sure that the dancers get as much rest as possible. But it's just kind of, you get amped to do a performance. So when I danced, I used to take a nap. I napped every single day at some point during the day. Uh, usually before performance, I'd go, I'd have an early dinner. I'd go back to my dressing room, take a nap. Then I'd get dressed and makeup and, and all that. And then by the time you're ready to go, the adrenaline and the excitement that just gets you through. And then, of course, you go home and you can't go to sleep because you're still wired, which still happens to me now as, as ballet master. And you stay up for a little bit. But our days are start later when we're performing. So accommodations are definitely met or made to, uh, to help us adapt. I saw a question over here. As a ballet master, how do you stay fit in order to demonstrate things for the dancers? Well, um, I, I, I must confess I have not taken a ballet class in a really long time, but uh, I have to demonstrate just because it's my job, so that keeps me fit. But me personally, I have um, an exercise class that I do that's pretty brutal that I do twice a week. Um, and then just make sure that I'm, I'm physically fit. I, I started dancing when I was six, and I went through till I was 42, so it's not like I'm going to forget how to, it doesn't go away. I can't do it anymore, that's for sure, but, you know, I, I, I see it, I work it every day, so um, I just try to stay as active as I can. Uh, I, I will probably go back to ballet class at some point, but I did retire after all, so... And on that note, we are out of time. I want to thank all of you for being here today. And please do uh, connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Pinterest, Instagram, all of that good stuff. Enjoy the show today. And thank you so much, Katita. Thank you. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts, educational programming, or other information, please check out sfballet.org.